Hello, welcome to Tales from the Albright, a podcast by the Scranton Public Library. Today we are discussing On Juneteenth by Annette Gordon-Reed. Um, we are here with Scott and Brianna. Hi! Hi! <laughs> so what was your initial reactions to the book? Uh, Well, I just thought it was really fascinating at first because I know so little about Texas. I feel like growing up in Pennsylvania, you learn like Pennsylvania local history. um, And we know like the big things about Texas, like the greatest hits, but we don't know a lot of the detail she gets into. And my favorite takeaway was just the way she reflects on Texas as the place where she grew up and the place that wasn't perfect, but that shaped her upbringing and those sort of things. Yeah. Yeah, I I would, um, you know, my, I've never been there. So my vision of it is formed from, you know, popular culture mm-hmm. and movies. And so I didn't know they had trees there. <laughs> you know? yeah. And, um, you know, the, the complexity of, of the state is unique in that it was once an independent country. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was surprised with some of that, just, you know, um, because, again, basing it on, on popular culture. I know. I had that exact thought yeah. about the six flags over Texas mm-hmm. and how it's about the six flags that have flown over Texas in its yeah. history. And I yeah. asked Charles, because Charles is from Dallas, I think he said Texas. And he was like, oh, yeah, you like you know that when you grow up in Texas. <laughs> I was like, oh. Yeah, I'd never heard of that before. Um, one of my good friends moved to Texas a few years ago. So I knew that it wasn't like all just like Wild Westy. It yeah. was because their neighbors have chickens and I've like seen pharaohs <laughs> of their houses. Yeah. So. Yeah. It seems like a very diverse place. Yes. I think that's partially just because land mass wise, it's so large. So in terms of slavery and race in Texas, I found it fascinating. The Republic of Texas Declaration of Independence really stood out to me. I think because it really just engraved slavery within the larger government structure of the republic itself. And then as a side note, I just find it interesting that it seems like so many declarations were just taken directly from Thomas Jefferson's. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that influence really just continues for forever, it seems like. Did you have any thoughts about that? Well, yeah, it's, um, you know, again, seeing the history of it and how they um, um, really built it into the structure of the country they were forming. And even after, um, even after Juneteenth, where they had limits on to, on to people, um, you know, of color, mm-hmm. even being able to free blacks to coming into the, you know, state, um, there were limits on that, too. That was surprising. I know. I thought it was really interesting. Like you said, like it echoes that language that we we saw at the foundations of our Mm -hmm. country. And I don't know if you experienced this in like studying history and like school and things, but it's like interesting how we echo that language in all of these things that we do. But there's something where someone's always left out of it. And you see us slowly trying to make up for those those losses in the people who are left out. So like the way that the general order number three brought about the idea that it's equality of rights between former masters and slaves because first it was only property owning white men and then it's like okay well now maybe we should talk about women and like it's interesting to see how over time that evolves too yes and I think it shows changing societal norms as well and people becoming more accepting and in today's world where everyone across the globe is so interconnected you experience more cultures than somebody say in the 1800s would have so that gives a completely different perspective that allows for that widening and more inclusivity 
in terms of language and how it's applied to communities. And of course, there's still an incredible amount of issues across the board, but it you can see that progression when you look at it from the past through today. And it's cool to me that talking about this as a library, that's so much part of our purpose. Like we talked about this as a staff this week, that it's like our purpose is equal access for all and doing this for all people. And I think it's really interesting to see how our mission is about trying to focus on that, like that incorporation, that making sure we treat all people as people and give all people access. Cause we have such a diverse group of people who live in our city and come to our library. Mm-hmm. And like, we care about that. And we want those stories to be told the way that Annette Gordon-Reed does here. That's, yeah, I mean, and one of the founding documents of this library, um, when the original charter from John J. Albright, um, says that the library board must have an Episcopalian minister and a, a priest and a rabbi and I believe a Methodist minister and other other very mainstream denominations. Um, notably excluded from there, um, you know, are some of the, of, of, of the black congregations and certainly, you know, non-European based um, as well. But for that point in time, late 19th century, that was considered diversity. They wanted... <laughs> Diversity represented yep. on the library board, mm-hmm. so they wanted, um, you know, these different, and that, those were the schisms in those days where the religious, um, you know, the, the religion and ethnic in those days. So you're coming from really far back to get to where we are and still have a ways to go. We know that. You right. know? Yeah, I think all of it kind of goes back to the stories that we tell ourselves mm-hmm. about the past and yep. where we've come from. And that goes into the origin stories, collective memory-esqueness of Juneteenth as a whole. Um, because she goes into how important having a solid history is a Quote even on page 58 of origin stories matter for individuals, groups of people, and for nations. They inform our sense of self, telling us what kind of people we believe we are, what kind of nation we believe in. And then later on the page, it continues, origin stories often seek to find the familiar or the superficially familiar. Memory, sometimes heading into mythology. Both memory and mythology have their uses, even if they must be separated from our understanding about the demands of historical thinking. And I think she really expands on that throughout the book. And what impacted me the most is the idea of an African-American vernacular that African-Americans were always written with having, when in reality, they were products of their culture. So her, the example I picked out was Sojourner Truth, who would have learned to speak Dutch, so she would have spoke English with a Dutch accent. And I feel like that's something that myself, as a white person, I never considered in the wider span of things, even though it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because all of fictional African-American people and historic African-American people, when their dialect was written, it was always in the stereotypical dialect written out in words. Um, and it, it's a um, it, it's basically a tendency that is worse than it ever has been in some ways, at least in my memory, mm-hmm. memory of viewing people as um, these um, these these basically oversimplified symbols. Mm-hmm. So um, and 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 so even well-meaning people 
would write black dialogue that way. Mm-hmm. And for and a good example, that one thing that shocked me in this book was that na- that indigenous people had African slaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now we view okay the indigenous people are. Uh, connected to nature and being exploited and having their homelands removed from them, not as slaveholders. Right. And again, it's part of this oversimplification and we're doing it now. We know what a Trump voter looks like. We know what a Black Lives Matter supporter looks like. And in our minds, it's gotten worse with the social media where it's very easy to, to make paint people as one one dimensional. And you see that in history here with, with all these things. that, And we always, I always thought Texas is one dimensional too, not knowing about it, you know, oh, they want us to see from the union, all this yes. kind of stuff, yes. you know. Um, so um, this book was very good about how complex everything is, mm-hmm. you know, and we can't we can't make assumptions um, at all, um, which you think we, we'd know that by now, but it's always good to be reminded of. Yes, <laughs> very true. Yeah, she does a great job of telling the, like those real stories and that's like my favorite takeaway is just the way she talks about how important storytelling is as a way of recording history like we're so used to being like oh only official documents only x y and z mm-hmm. perspectives like those are what real history is but that's what led us to not know these things like that's where we thought oh well we knew that a lot of the white people use native americans as slaves but nobody really would have thought native americans would have had african-american slaves like you don't expect that because that's not the history we were taught but her narrative is all about introducing those stories and those counter narratives that we never got to learn and um, gordon reed says here on page 37 for many years blacks like the ones in conroe and livingston all over the country really have had their stories written out of history the tyranny of ideas about the archive or what constitute the official record all too often has buried their knowledge and rendered it suspect and as librarians we know that that is true because the books that we have in our collection here are written by or about the people that were in power, the mm-hmm. coal mine owners, yep. mm-hmm. the, the business people who own, who's, they have buildings named after them, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. These are the people that are in the history books. Um, and now there is an effort, um, thanks to a national endowment for the humanities grant, the University of Scranton is spearheading the Scranton story, which mm-hmm. seeks to tell some of these other stories that we haven't heard about because um, and you know for indigenous people and the black community mm-hmm. and things like that so that's important because we know it's in our history books we, you yeah, know yeah. we know it's in there um, that's not the whole story no I feel like growing up here the only things I was really exposed to were like the plaques on the heritage trail about the indigenous people of the area or more recently with the Black Scranton Project and the information they put out about the black community here in Scranton. And that's really all we ever got through school growing up was just coal mines and people from England and Wales and Eastern Europe, which I know that gets into a complicated territory depending on who you talk to. But those are the only stories I feel were really told in terms of local history. Yes, that's very true. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see how 
those stories that we can tell that are like the personal stories really reflect like we said the people we didn't always know were there but also just the people who are here now like mm-hmm. we have so many people who have come into this area our area is becoming so much more diverse i know we've seen a lot um especially with covid um driving a lot of people out of the the cities themselves and into suburbs and places like us that are close to them but like i have teens that come to programs that were born in other countries and like you would never know these things if you didn't know the origin stories of the people who may not have been born here but who have come here and made this their home and really shape what our city has become and i love that that's like what i said like the takeaway she says of like even if a a place isn't perfect our history here is not so perfect maybe there were a lot of issues and things um that have happened in our area but it's a great place and we can make it a better place by embracing all of the parts of it yeah, and I think that goes into what she talks about. I forget exactly what page it's on, but sort of the trend of how those darker parts kind of make all of us feel shameful. So then it's, there's a tendency to try and reject them. And that gets into like the more recent accusations of revisionist history and those types of things when really it's just a more expanding history because new things are learned all of the time. That is true. And um, yeah. And, you know, again, we can say that, um, okay, this is not Texas. You know, Pennsylvania was not, was part of the original 13. It was never an independent country. It was on the other side of the Civil War, Um, you know, but we have similar, worked through similar things because even people who are currently alive, like my father, um, will have clear memory of the ethnic, um, you know, you had a certain hierarchy, English, (laughs) Irish, especially here, okay, and like Polish and Italians were, mm, you know, yeah. and bl- black people were not even noticed, okay, yeah. and so, and there there was, you couldn't marry, an mm. Italian couldn't marry an Irish, mm. Catholic and Protestant, no way, yeah. um, you know, and <laughs> yeah. even even there's two, there is um, Polish National Catholic and regular Catholic, that they wouldn't, Oh, yeah, you know, my husband's Polish national. I was like, oh yeah. no, we're breaking stereotypes here. <laughs> and so this is all in living memory of people here, mm-hmm. which we've gotten away from through generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, that does give me hope mm-hmm. and makes this area exceptional in that we've worked through that and are accepting mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. that, that may not look like us, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, um, you know, it is very diverse. And, um, that's that's to be envied. It really is. It's it's a wonderful place to have mm-hmm. a library. Yes, very <laughs> true. You know, it yeah. really is. And it's interesting with because we work with Norma Reese from Forest Hill Cemetery often, and she kind of goes into the history every once in a while and looking up African Americans that are buried at Forest Hill because I wasn't aware of this. Um, but a lot of places, cemeteries were segregated. Mm. But a lot of the cemeteries in this area in particular weren't. Everyone was just together. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, you were kind of divided by religion. But regardless of that, everyone was kind of buried together. And there was a surprising number of interracial marriages back in the late 1800s in the area as well. Yeah. So there are some things that we can point to that it's like, okay, maybe... Maybe it's not as awful as we anticipated. And with the revealing stories of the Underground Railroad that the Waverly Community House is doing, um, obviously things were not good, but (laughs) 
it's something that we can look to to be like here's the stories and because of that the stories are more preserved yeah and they just need to be uncovered right um i think i think some of the stories in here like about mr mr white what happened to him some of the violence um that was sanctioned by in a courtroom it happened Mm -hmm. that is something that is was troubling to read um and it's interesting that the tone of this book doesn't have any bitterness or anything it's, mm-hmm. it's about working through um you know because i'm reading it i'm going this is great i mean you know i heard about things like that but reading it about it mm-hmm. um so her tone though was again not there is not anger which i find hard you know because yeah. it's it is it was outrageous in some ways yeah and i think that also ties into page 110 where Gordon Reed states the answer to all of this of course is that we should refrain from idealizing human beings we can accept what we think are the good things they did and there will always be differences of opinion about what good means and not treat them as if they define an entire person that may be hard to do with myths and legends but the attempt to recognize and grapple with humanity and thus the failability of people in the past and the present must be made. That is the stuff of history too. That gets into the question of if, as I did, had relatives of previous generations maybe born in the very late 19th century, early 20th century, use the N-word routinely, um, you know, do you give them the benefit of the doubt and say they're a part of their culture, you know, Mm -hmm. and judge them as a person otherwise? That's a big, you know, you know, I remember growing up knowing I knew that word was wrong. Mm-hmm. My parents taught me that, but my step-grandfather used it routinely, and I liked him, you know, yeah. I liked him. And he was a barber in the city of Scranton who cut the elite hair. He was he had a barbershop oh. over here in the YMCA, near the library, and, um, you know, and he had great stories and everything, but he used that word. And I knew it was wrong, but, you know, you, I was kid I knew it was wrong and you I kept my mouth shut I didn't say anything to him um but there's a there's understanding that he was old mm-hmm. and so may that's what this passage is kind of saying yeah. is that you know you can't judge too harshly because people are the products of their times and are are human beings mm-hmm. we all we all have our own blind spots yes. you know so that that was it was interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's getting back to that point of realizing how complicated humans are mm-hmm. and how complicated society is and recognizing those complications and recognizing like your own weak points and then the weak points of others and how to be accepting of that. Yes. And it ties to what we do with the books we carry too. Like the fact that we <laughs> Yeah, we don't we don't believe in censorship. Like we want to be able to share like some of the stuff that she talks about, like the example you brought up, um, and the lynchings and things are in books like To Kill a Mockingbird, which have tried to be banned for those very things and for the language they show. And I think it's important that we have all of these books that allow us to reflect on and see different perspectives and the way that history has been told. And it's important to see books like Annette Gordon-Reed's, which brings in those other perspectives of history, but we like to have all of it. Yeah, and the library reflects the very complexity of, of, of you, because all these books side by side, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, I, I noticed, this was purely by accident, by the way, the 1619 Project was right next to a book about, um, and let me see if I can get 
the title right. It was about um, woke racism. It was a book critical of the woke wokeness. Right. And right side by side. Yeah. And therein lies that's that's where you can come and get this, uh, as opposed to being on social media. You can come here and get see all these ideas, and you're not you're not going to like them all, and some of them will offend you. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody will be offended by yeah. something in this yeah. library. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> the library. You will probably be offended yeah, by there's something, something but there's something for you, it's, too. Yes. There's 200,000 volumes. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's, there's at those levels, you know. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for agreeing to be on the book discussion. If you haven't picked up your copy of On Juneteenth by Annette Gordon-Reed, we do have copies to check out here at the library. Um, thank you for the University of Scranton for partnering with us on and allowing us to have programs here as well. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or anything at all, feel free to email me at aloney at albright.org. That is A-L-O-N-E-Y at albright.org. Or you can feel free to call the library at 570-348-3000. Thank you. Mm -hmm.